Thank you. Well, for me, this is uh, almost a slightly strange experience. Uh, it's kind of uh, it's great to be here again because I'm sure that a whole number of people do not recognise me and probably have never seen me before. But I have actually preached in this church 53 times. <laughs> Uh, not in this building, this building and the previous one, uh, and I counted up, and this is the, my 54th sermon that I've ever preached here, so um, I have been very much in contact with this church in the past, but I don't think I've been here for about eight years, <coughs> so it's really good to be back with you and to have this opportunity once again to share the Word of God with you. And we're going to go today to Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to pick up at verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters In the assembly, I will sing out your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but God's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." And I want to draw your attention to the fact that in verse 10 here, it speaks of Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation. Other translations put it slightly differently, something like the champion who secures our salvation. And I want to explore that a bit this morning as we look at this passage. Let me just for a moment address a question that could possibly arise as a bit of a problem in your mind if you were following that reading uh, closely, and it's the reference to Jesus being made perfect. And you think, wow, what does that mean? Because surely Jesus is perfect. Surely uh, he was and is always without sin. Let me say that this is no reference to his character. It's no reference to Jesus' morality. It's simply saying this, that through what he suffered, Jesus became our perfect Savior. So that's the uh, reference to perfection there. He suffered for us, and through that suffering, He became our perfect Savior. And if Jesus is our perfect Savior, if He's the pioneer of our salvation, then what is it that that really means for us? And that's really what I want to touch on today. And we'll just look at a number of things here that it speaks of in terms of Jesus being the pioneer and our perfect Savior. First thing I'd like you to notice is that He is bringing us to glory. It says that in verse 10, doesn't it? In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, and then speaks of the pioneer of our salvation. And in a way, the writer in this passage begins with the best news first. This is the ultimate thing. This is the most amazing thing that Jesus, our perfect Savior, 
will bring us to glory. Now, it does say that he is the pioneer that's doing that, and if you think of a pioneer, I wonder what comes into your mind. Probably uh, what comes into your mind is someone who is the first one through. They pioneer, they break through, they're the first one through. But it's true to say, isn't it, that a pioneer is somebody who not only breaks through for the first time, but leads other people through as well. Other people follow on behind. Somebody pioneers, but other people follow on behind. He or she blazes a trail. Uh, I suppose one of the most obvious examples of this, and uh, always comes to my mind in this connection, is Hillary and Tensing climbing Mount Everest in 1953. First time that anybody had reached the top of that mountain. They were true pioneers, and they reached the very top of the highest mountain in the world for the first time in human history. But because they were pioneers, many people have followed on behind them. And today, I gather, in the climbing season, you can go to Mount Everest, and literally hundreds of people are queuing to get to the top of Mount Everest. In 1953, pioneers, but because they were pioneers, many people have been able to follow on. And so Jesus also is a pioneer. He's blazing a trail to glory. After his death and resurrection, he didn't just disappear, he ascended to glory. But because he's the pioneer, because he's broken through, he'll bring us there as well. Now, how do we describe what glory means in this connection? He's the pioneer bringing us to glory. And really, this is very difficult because, in a sense, the danger here is that any attempt to describe this glory that he's going to bring us into will rob it of something of its wonder. Um, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony may not be your favorite piece of music, but it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, piece of music. If I tried to describe Beethoven's Fifth Symphony to you in words, I would rob it of something of its majesty and its glory. You have to actually experience it to get the majesty and glory of it. Uh, you remember the Apostle Paul once spoke of a time when he was caught up out of the body, it seems, and uh, he describes himself being caught up into paradise, into the third heaven. And then very interestingly, he says this, but what I saw and heard, I'm not permitted to tell. It's as though the very description of what he experienced and saw in that experience of glory would actually, if he tried to describe it and speak about it, would rob it of something of its majesty and wonder. Let me just mention, though, a couple of things here, just really in passing, because the Bible tells us about this. Certainly, in terms of experiencing glory, we will one day be there in resurrection bodies. And these present bodies that are so much now in decay, uh, my grand, one of my granddaughters reminded me last week that uh, cells begin to die off, apparently, at the age of 25. So if you're over that, you're already well on the way to extinction, all right, in your body. Uh, she's well under 25 at the moment, so she's not worried. Uh, many of us will be. Uh, all right, so we're all going that way. Um, but actually, these bodies are going to be replaced by glorious resurrection bodies in which we will experience that glory. We will also enjoy a restored creation. Scripture is very clear about that in so many places, that what is going to happen when Christ comes again and brings in the fullness of his kingdom is to restore the whole of creation to perfection. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul says that he's made known to us, that's those of us in Christ, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. 
which will be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to reconcile all things in heaven and on the, on the earth under Christ. And everything in creation is going to be restored to a glorious perfection. And that's what we'll be uh, seeing and experiencing in this glory. And even beyond and above that, we'll also see God face to face. It says that in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4. A bit mysterious, really, if you think about it, because God is spirit. So how do you see him face to face? But in some way, we will look upon the full majesty and glory of God. And he will look at us. And he will acknowledge us as his people and as his children. So see, first of all here, what Jesus the pioneer is doing. He is blazing a trail to glory. And he's going to take us there as well. And then secondly, you need to see that he's making us holy comes out in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Now, I think the word holy doesn't always carry too well today. Uh, What comes into your mind when you think of holy? Uh, Maybe someone who looks rather pious, perhaps even looks a bit depressed, to be honest. You know, it can kind of have that impression, I think, the word holy. I'm not sure it carries all that well today as a word. But perhaps we need to remind ourselves that the way above every way to describe God is holy. We say God is love, and that's absolutely correct, but love is an attribute of His holiness. If you want to speak about God essentially, you have to speak about a God who is holy. And so when we talk about being made holy, we're actually talking about becoming like God. And that sounds impossible. Wonderful, wonderful verse in Hebrews that I come to again and again. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Go to chapter 10 and verse 14. Superb verse this. For by one sacrifice, he, God, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amazing verse. I want you to imagine a young man and young lady, and they begin to go out together. They fall in love and their romance is developing, moving on. And there comes that day when the young man says to the young lady, you know, you're just perfect. And she responds to him in the romantic moment and says, and you're just perfect too. Then he says, I know. And that ruins everything, all right? (laughs) But actually... In the Word of God, it speaks about us being made perfect. That's what it says here in Hebrews 10, uh, that by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, we have been made perfect. It means that to God, hear me carefully here, we look like Jesus. And I tell you why, because we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And God sees us in Christ. He sees us in Jesus. But we need to understand also that right now, and that's why in that little conversation it would have broken down when the guy would say, yes, I know I am. But right now, there's a work going on in us to make us more like him. And so in one way, to God, we're like Jesus. We're made perfect in the sense that we're in Christ. God sees us covered with the righteousness of Jesus because of the finished and done work of Jesus. Right? We look like him to God. He sees us through his Son. And yet at the same time, we're becoming like Jesus because there's an ongoing work taking place in our lives. 
And in fact, this being made holy explains a lot about our difficulties as Christians. I've had some reference to that already today in testimonies that have been given, haven't we? There are trials, there are sickness, there are disappointments, there are rejections that we face, there's misunderstandings that we go through. I mean, how do we react when those things happen? I remember when I was an elder in the Brighton Church, uh, I'm now an elder at Citygate in Bournemouth in retirement, but uh, when I was an elder in the, the Church of Christ the King in Brighton, I went through a patch in my ministry there when things were a bit tough, to be honest, it was going through quite a difficult time, personally, and I... I think on one occasion I was grumbling about it a bit to my wife, Sue, and she said this to me, I always remember it, she says, you're being tested to see how you actually come through this. You see, at times we are tested because God is making us holy. Sometimes it's even a period of discipline. Why? Because God wants us to train us in holiness. If you, if you go to the very next verse, or very next book rather, after Hebrews in James chapter 1 and verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I tell you, that challenges a modern worldview. Today, we're often seriously committed to living an easy life. But God is seriously committed to making us more like Jesus. A.W. Tozer, a great prophetic writer, said this, When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. So God, through Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, is making us holy. Next, I want you to see he adds us to his family. That comes out also in verse 11. It speaks about both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers and sisters. Uh, And actually, he goes on in the same way in the next few verses to speak about the family of God. We quite often celebrate, don't we, the fact that we are a family and a family that's drawn from all the nations to make us one new people, one new family. I've had some striking examples of this over the years. I remember once when I was preaching in the Brighton Church, and at the end of the the meeting, it was just appropriate to make this kind of appeal. I said, if you come from another nation other than uh, from, from Great Britain, we'd like you to come to the front, and we'll pray for you. 35 different nations responded to that appeal. I thought, wow, you know, one people of God and yet drawn from all these nations. Citygate, where I am now, for a a time we were in a small group and about 13 or 14 uh, would attend it. Six different nations were represented in that one small group. The Bible tells us we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Once we were not a people, that is a people together, but now we are the people of God. And our lives are hugely enriched when we recognize that we are one people, even as we gather in from all the nations. In fact, we can come to a point of discovering that our peoplehood as the people of God is greater and has greater significance than our individual nationhood.
I love the variety it brings uh, because uh, I've traveled a lot in my ministry. I've been in a whole number of countries and I just love the variety that there is amongst the people of God. I remember once in Dubai and I was preaching to a, a congregation that we had there that was made up of Pakistanis. Uh, and again, at the end of the meeting, after I preached, I, I made an appeal for people to come forward to pray. Now, if you do that in Great Britain, let me tell you this. Uh, a few people come forward uh, and uh, offer themselves for prayer, and what they do is to space them out. There definitely has to be space between everybody. But when you pour, call for a, a Pakistani congregation to come forward for prayer, first of all, the whole congregation comes forward for prayer. <laughs> And secondly, there's no space at all to pray for them. They cohere into one solid mass of humanity, completely different to us, and yet part of us, part of the people of God. I remember once preaching uh, to a congregation in a jungle in Ghana, and by the, the light of a generator, which attracted every bug in the jungle and the fattest duck that you had ever seen, who throughout my preaching gobbled up every single one of these bugs, and Rick's, at least he left the meeting well-fed, even if everybody else didn't. <laughs> well, I had a very moving uh, time once in Bangalore in India, and uh, I was uh, right at the end of a difficult ministry trip, not difficult, I mean tiring, difficult in that sense, and I was right at the end, and I was wanting to go home, and uh, I was taking one more meeting, and I was in a kind of upper room, and it was the evening, and all the sights, smells, and sounds of India were outside, very vibrant always. And here I was in this upper room, and I was with a group of Tamil-speaking Indian Christians, very, very poor. A lot of them were tiny little ladies, really small ladies, who worked for hours every day, humping bricks around on building sites. And we sang songs, and uh, they were in another language, and went up on the screen. I couldn't recognize a letter, let alone a word. And the music was different, and... uh, And I had to preach to this group of people, and I thought, there's nothing that I have in common with these people. I don't know their language. I can't understand them. Physically, they're so different. Their background, their education, everything about them is entirely different. And yet suddenly, in a moment that God gave me, as I stood there, I thought, but these are my people. We're the one family of God. And in those moments, I wouldn't have been anywhere else on earth. God has made us into one people with all the variety that's expressed in that. But for all the emphasis here on being family together, that actually there's a stronger emphasis that we're of the same family as Jesus himself. Did you see that? Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He doesn't blush to identify himself with us in the same family. I think that's pretty incredible. And the whole theme of the family of God is so strong in the New Testament. God is Father. Jesus is our brother. In these verses here, it also speaks of us as the children of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, uh, Jesus says, Who is my family? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? He who does the will of God. And in different ways, we are absolutely the family of God belonging not only to one another, but actually related to God himself through Jesus Christ. Now, we've just been seeing that uh, Jesus is making us holy, making us more like himself, and we need that. The astonishing thing is that Jesus, of course, became like us. 
in order that he might be one in family with us. So there in verse 14 it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus became like us. He shared in our humanity. Let me give you one reason why that is so very important. If you begin talking to non-Christians ever about the Christian faith, almost always the big thing that they will bring up will be the problem of suffering. And they say, well, how can I believe in God when there is so much suffering in the world? Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that Jesus came to share our humanity. And because of that, he's not immune to our suffering. You ever heard this? It's called the long silence. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about our suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. And in another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. And far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he'd permitted in the world. How lucky God was to live in heaven. We're all with sweetness and light, where there's no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What, God, what did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. And so each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. And in the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. And at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. And let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be horribly alone. Let him, let him die so that no doubt could be made that he did die. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. See, God in Jesus Christ has identified with us in our suffering. He has shared our humanity, including death, Verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like us, fully human in every way. Jesus became like us so that he might pioneer through and take us with him and make us like him.
And so, he is our brother, and we belong to the same family. He's the perfect saviour. And then, next we see he frees us from the fear of death. That's in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, the fear of death comes because of what there might be after death. That's why there's a fear of death. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul puts it like this. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And so the sting and the pain of death come in this way, that even if people deny God, even if people proclaim themselves atheists, supposing because of what I have done after death, there is something, supposing there is some, some kind of payback, suppose there is some kind of judgment. And so that's why you have the fear of death. The sting of death is sin, and the, and the power of sin is the law. It's because people have broken the law of God. That's why there's a sting in death, because of what might come after death. And so we need to make much of the death of Christ. That's what it's saying here in verse 14, that Jesus is the one who breaks the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, in my library at home, I have a few books by the great Puritan theologian called John Owen. Pretty heavy-going theology, but remarkable man and remarkable writing of theology. And one of the books I've got is headed The Death of Death in the Death of Christ by John Owen. And if you open it, you'll find that there are 309 pages of very tiny print speaking about the death of Christ. There's good news, though, about that book, and that is you can live on the title alone, (laughs) which is the death of death in the death of Christ. Because in his death, Jesus turned the tables. Surely when he went to the cross, the devil had won. This innocent man, this beautiful man, Jesus, He'd gone to the cross, and there he was dying in shame and agony. Surely the devil had won. But Jesus at the cross is actually saying, I embrace the cross. I'll die. I'll take the sin and the death of other people in my death. It was our hell for Jesus on the cross, which is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, sensing an abandonment by God because he was being made sin for us. And yet, that death, that crucifixion, broke Satan's power over us. For it was Jesus in our place. And so, if we will trust his death for our death, then it takes away the fear of what happens after death. It breaks the fear of death for us. Now, the first readers to whom this writer to the Hebrews was writing were living in some fear of death, it seems. 
They were under persecution. Perhaps they feared death by the Roman state. And what the writer is saying, you're not to live as slaves to the fear of death, when in fact one day you're going to rule the universe. And Paul is the one who puts it so beautifully, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 8 and uh, verses 1 and 2, when he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice this, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's broken the sting of death and the power of the law by actually taking condemnation, punishment, loss, and death for us. I read once that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, greatest preacher, British preacher of the 20th century, when he was dying, said this to his family, don't pray for my healing, don't hold me back from the glory. He knew what it was to have lost the fear of death through the death of Christ. Jesus, the pioneer, is blazing a trail to glory, and it breaks the fear of death. Notice this also next, he made atonement for us. That's there in verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, there's a reference here to the high priesthood of Christ, and this is a continuing theme in Hebrews. If I was preaching a series on the book of Hebrews, I'd have to teach you a lot about the high priesthood of Christ, and actually culminates really in chapter 7, where Jesus is described as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is actually a reference to the fact that Jesus is in every way a superior priest. But linked to the high priesthood of Christ is the fact that he makes atonement for us, and that's what the writer says here. And when you speak of atonement, it means that Jesus turns aside the wrath of God from us. I read a remarkable statement by Tim Keller, one of the great preachers of today, uh, the other day. Uh, Tim Keller says in a book I'm reading on prayer, he says, God protects us from God. It's a great statement, that. You need to think about that. God protects us from God. Because through Jesus Christ, His Son, there is a turning away of the wrath of God from us. Jesus has made atonement for us. Now, we should stop here a very long time, and you'd think the writer to the Hebrews would stop here a very long time when he starts to talk about atonement, but in fact, he doesn't. He doesn't actually spend time on this until he gets to chapters 9 and 10, and then he does spend a long time on it. Here, he just mentions the fact that Jesus has made atonement for us. He doesn't go into detail, it's just a mention, and he deals with it in depth later. He kind of just drops it in. I want to take something from that. That's what we should do. We should just drop it in. We should drop it into our thinking regularly. Regularly, we should be reminding ourselves, Jesus made atonement for us. He's the perfect Savior. He turned aside the wrath of God from us and took it himself. We need to preach to ourselves. People sometimes say that if you speak to yourself, it's the first sign of madness. Christians you need to speak to yourselves, all right? It's not the first sign of madness. It's the first sign of common sense. Every Christian should be a preacher. Preach to yourself. Right? Jesus made atonement for me. He turned aside 
the wrath of God from my sin. Why? Because he's a pioneer, but also, of course, because he's the perfect saviour. And then lastly, what I want you to see is that Jesus helps us when we're tempted. And that comes out in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And so there is clear reference here to Jesus being tempted. And actually more than that, that he suffered when he was tempted. And that's explained in the very next chapter. Because if you go to chapter 4 and verse 15, this is what we read. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Right. So here's, here's one who feels sympathy for our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way. And the reason that Jesus Christ has suffered in his temptation is because Jesus went to the absolute extreme in terms of temptation. And none of us have done that. None of us have been to the absolute extreme in terms of temptation. All of us actually have given in to temptation at some point. None of us have pushed it to the uttermost extreme of temptation. But Jesus has. He's been there to the uttermost extreme of temptation and yet never gave in. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews here in verse 18 of chapter 2 says that Jesus suffered in his temptation. It means that actually Jesus is able to help us in our temptation. He understands. He really does. You might sometimes think that your temptation, what you're going through in times of temptation now, is something that is utterly unique. I want to say it's not. Jesus has been there. He has taken it to the extreme. Just think of Jesus being tempted to turn back from the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the will of God for him, to go to the cross. What happened to Jesus in that temptation? He suffered. He suffered to the point of shedding blood as he sweated and prayed. But he did not turn back from the cross and the will of God. And we're tempted to turn back from the will of God. Let me tell you this, Jesus understands that. He's been there. He's suffered for that. Also, he helps us because he gives us prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, we can pray, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. He helps us because he's given us truth. In Romans 6, 11, we, we read that we're to reckon or count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's a great way to overcome temptation. It's truth. Say to yourself, preach to yourself again, I am dead to sin. I've died to the old life. Jesus has taken my sin. He's taken my guilt. He's taken my punishment. That's over. I'm dead to sin in the sight of God, and I'm alive to God. Helps you to overcome temptation. It also gives us a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that uh, we are new people in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. We've got new natures, we're new people. You put all that together, it means we can choose, even in the face of temptation now, we can choose not to sin. I've sometimes spoken to Christians who say, well, I can't help it, I'm only human. I want to say, you're not only human, you're born again. You can help it. 
You've got a new life, and you can overcome. And Jesus is there to help you. Jesus helps us when we are tempted. This is such a rich passage of Scripture. Jesus, the pioneer. And yet as you go through it more and more, you see he's not only the pioneer, but he's the perfect saviour. What does it mean to say Jesus is our pioneer and perfect saviour? Well, we need to think about it. We need to get hold of it, really grasp it, let it do us good, let it be medicine to our souls. It means this, he's bringing us to glory. Jesus has pioneered the way and he's going to take us there and we'll be with him and in that glory. He's making us holy. He's working on us right now. That's why we face difficulties and trials and pressures. But Jesus is working on us to make us holy. He's added us to his family. Not only do we belong to one another, but Jesus is in that family too. He's our elder brother. We belong to the same family as Jesus. He frees us from the fear of death because he himself has taken the punishment for our death and for our sin. He's made atonement for us, turns aside the wrath of God, and he helps us when we're tempted. It's a glorious passage. Jesus, the pioneer. Jesus, the perfect saviour. Friends, hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's stand together, can we please? Perhaps we can have the band up, can we? We're just drawing to a close. Just wonder if we can bow in prayer for a moment, please. Um, I've got enough pastoral experience uh, to know that you can preach about being delivered from the fear of death and Jesus taking our death. I might put it like this, almost till you're blue in the face. And yet uh, sometimes... There are Christians who are still struggling there. They're fearing death. And uh, I want to pray for you this morning because my, my guess is that there'll be some people here this morning that even though you're a Christian believer, you fear death. Let me say this. If you're not a Christian believer, the way to overcome the fear of death is to turn to Jesus Christ and to believe on him and his death for you because he died in your place. And you can trust him this morning and you can know deliverance. And yet some Christians still seem to hang on to something here. Still seems to be some fear of death. I'm not talking about the fear of dying. I know that that might alarm some of us. But I'm talking about the the fear of death itself. Some of you this morning may still be in that position. Basically, it's because you're trusting yourself. You're not trusting Jesus. Basically, it's because it's about your works. It's not about the work of Jesus. It always comes back to that. You might deny that, but that's where it's rooted. Because actually you haven't sufficiently looked to the death of Jesus. And I want to pray for you today that you really grasp hold of the full significance of the death of Jesus. So you'll see it's the death of your death and the death of Jesus. Now, I'm asking that everybody bows their head, closes their eyes, just because it might help me to, to pray with more vigor. Anybody here that would own up to that and say, yes, I have a fear of death? You'd put your hand up a moment? Would you, would you just raise your hand? Just be honest about that? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Father, I pray right now for brothers, for sisters who would admit I have something still of a fear of death. And I pray 
that they will get hold of this truth afresh this morning, that Jesus made atonement for us. He turned aside the wrath of God from us. He's our great high priest. He accomplished that. And Jesus, I want to pray too that people will get hold of the fact that it's the death of death in the death of Jesus that my death dealt with in the death of Jesus. What comes after my death is glory. It's not punishment, it's not condemnation, it's glory. And and Father, I thank you you sent your Son. He became like us. He embraced humanity fully, even to the point of death, in order that he might carry our death, the punishment of sin, the guilt and the shame of sin. I thank you for freedom. Christ has set us free. And I pray today that anybody that's acknowledged that in these last few moments, that you will be set free from the fear of death. And you look to Jesus, the perfect Savior and the pioneer who will bring you to glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's worship as we close.